Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. what do we got here obviously it's the skeletal the skeletal remains of the head and um, look long enough at the moon and you can convince yourself there's a face in it it's called pareidolia I need to find patterns where none exist maybe that's why 18 months into this story we find ourselves looking for answers in the skull of an equus ferris cabalus horses heads are large this one looks especially impressive, laid out on the floor of Kieran Doyle's living room, in front of the TV, which has framed photos of his grandkids on top of it. So you brought this in the kitchen? Oh, no, no. Outdoors. I boiled it outdoors. Uh, what I did was... Kieran was a Cork City paramedic. Now he collects the skulls of animals, mainly roadkill, foxes, cats and squirrels. He showed us his whole collection. Studying animal bite marks has become a side hobby to his main obsession which is proving his theory about the death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. He believes Sophie wasn't murdered at all. I'm quite confident that Sophie's injuries are consistent with, with an attack from an animal, namely a horse. In this sense, there's, there's no fact. We first came across Kieran on YouTube. His belief is that a horse got loose from a nearby paddock and wandered into Sophie's garden that night. Early in the morning, she went out in her pyjamas to feed the horse and it attacked her. Kieran wrote up his fairly extensive research and sent copies to the media, Ian's legal team, the DPP, even Sophie's family. What do um, what do people usually say when you tell them about your theory that she's? Uh, I suppose really that you know, telling me I should be in a, in a home for the bewildered. I suppose that's why you know I need help and things. You know, that's what goes with these things. If you're prepared to put yourself out there. But here's the crazy thing. Something like this happened before, in Sweden, with an elk. Back in 2008, the badly disfigured body of a woman was discovered by the banks of a lake in rural Sweden. The Swedish police arrested the woman's husband. It had been a stormy relationship and the couple was spotted arguing in the street just before she disappeared. A little over a year later, the Swedish police were forced into a humiliating climb-down. Forensic tests on the victim's clothes turned up elk hair and elk saliva. It turned out that elk regularly ate fermented apples down by that riverbank. It now seemed likely that a drunk elk encountered the victim by the river and rammed her. The police admitted the improbable has now become probable. Kieran thinks that once people have an idea in their heads about something like this, 
it becomes impossible to really consider any other explanation. That theory becomes an article of faith. For Kieran, the logic extends to the moment someone first used the word murder in relation to Sophie's death. But in Sophie's case, where so little seems certain, maybe an idea like Kieran's isn't so crazy. Or more to the point, we can't take anything for granted. Like you could say, I'm punching above my weight, you know, but what I'm asking are questions. You know, I'm posing the question, I'm posing the challenge. That's the question, yeah? What did happen in Tormor? This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Sam Bungie. I'm Jennifer Ford, and this is episode 12, Loose Ends. Kieran says ask the question. But this investigation is now more than 20 years old, and from just hours after Sophie's body was discovered, the man who would become the only suspect was in the picture, crowding out the frame. They'd never met anybody quite like myself. A pattern emerged that seemed to connect Ian to the crime. 20 years later, that pattern's etched in, and it's hard to visualize another one. Still, we wanted to take Kieran up on his challenge to see if we could figure out whether the guards really followed this investigation wherever it might lead, or whether they were too quick to shut down lines of inquiry that might have led to proof of the killer's identity, to see if we could go back to the beginning and take a step in a different direction, any direction. And we found someone to ask. My name is Declan Gilson. I'm a former deputy and assistant state pathologist in Ireland. We couldn't speak to the pathologist who performed the autopsy on Sophie Toscander-Plantier. He's in his 80s and has dementia. But we sent the information we had to Gilsonen. Gilsonen is confident that Sophie's wounds weren't consistent with an animal attack. The wounds were too many, too varied, and they were strategic blows, concentrated around the head. He said there was no indication of more than one assailant. It wasn't likely an assassination or the work of a serial killer, he told us that whoever did this didn't come with murder in mind. I think it was a killing that happened without anybody intending to start out and kill somebody. There doesn't seem to be any pre-planning involved. There was a sort of a casual element to this whole murder. Gilson and calls it a casual crime scene. He means there's nothing organised or thought through about it. The killer used weapons he had to hand. Maybe a weapon from the house, like the missing hatchet. Or maybe just the slate rock and the concrete block left by the body. I think there were, there, there were weapons picked up on the spot. Weapons of opportunity, if you like. Is it possible it was an accident? No, I don't think so. Not in the light of the apparent involvement of the um, concrete block. Those type of blocks uh, weigh 23 kilograms. Try picking up one of those blocks. Uh, so in no, they couldn't be accidental. Whoever did this to Sophie, did they obviously meant to hurt her, but did they mean to kill her? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, it seems to be some sort of an argument, a dispute, uh, something said, a threat made or something like that, and a pursuit then. Um, an entanglement in a burglar fence and an attack with a stone and then uh, finishing off with um, a 
with the pounding by a concrete block. People have talked about this as a crime of passion. Gilsonen said, not necessarily. He doesn't see evidence of a sexual motive. He says it doesn't even have to be someone who knew Sophie. But how do you connect that to the fact that there's no resolution? You mean that it could have been many people? Does that widen the net, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it could have been, you know, somebody who'd never seen her before. It, it, it has the appearance of uh, happening almost spontaneously with some spark. The Garda file on Sophie makes a case for Ian Bailey as this casual murderer. But the file presents a cast of characters the guards selected. It doesn't run through every possible scenario. Another investigation might present a different version. And maybe, in that version, Ian fades into the background. A bit player. Just the local reporter who was first on the scene. Other people were in the area that night. What would have happened if the investigation had focused on the guy Marie Farrell said she originally described to the guards? The man in the long black coat, who Marie says she saw three times on the weekend of the murder. When you think about this guy, can you still picture him? He was definitely foreign looking. He didn't look Irish, but he was definitely European, if that makes sense. You know, he was sort of sallow skinned and, you know, the way he dressed. He would have, you know, struck me as being maybe Italian or French or something like that. You've never seen this person again? Never, no. But you know that there was some travel agent in Galway said that a man fitting that description came into them on Christmas Eve looking for a flight that day to Paris. He's saying that the man who came in that day fits the description of the man I had seen outside the shop. I don't know what, Sweeney or Max Sweeney? That's the name, I think, of the travel agent. We did know that. His name's Morris Sweeney. He was a travel agent and we spoke to him. He says he had a man in his travel agency the morning Sophie's body was discovered, who matches Marie's description of an olive-skinned European. His travel agency wasn't in West Cork. It was several hours north, near the city of Galway. But coincidentally, Sophie had been a customer of his, back when she was house hunting around Ireland. Morris never took the man's contact details, but he says the guy seemed frazzled. He asked a question about West Cork, and then ultimately wanted a recommendation for a hotel next to the airport. Morris believes the man he saw could have murdered Sophie and then vanished without trace. He told us he could never find a guard to take his statement, but he could understand their frustration. He said it must be like looking for a ghost. There are other possibilities. A Frenchman who moved to West Cork from Marseille met Sophie one day at a restaurant and then committed suicide just a few months after her murder. There was a German guy living near Skull who had no alibi for that night. The guards spoke to him. He was a big drinker and had been violent towards his partner. He moved back to Germany and also committed suicide. There was a rumour going round that he'd left a note to the effect, I've done something terrible and I cannot live with myself. The guards testified that they'd chased this down via German police. There was no note. 
Sean Murray worked at a petrol station in West Cork. He says a woman matching Sophie's description stopped by on the Friday afternoon Sophie had arrived from Paris, and she had a man in the car with her. The guards testified that they discounted Sean's statement because his description of the car was different from the car Sophie rented. I've received information from lots of different people over the years, and a lot of it's been erroneous and... Uh, this is information about other possible suspects. Yes, and who was the, the murderer. But recently I've received some information. And how did the information arrive? Well, I got a, I got a letter out of the blue from somebody. Ian was showing us a Christmas card with a handwritten letter inside. On. Dear Mr Bailey, um, I do believe uh, you're being framed by Angada Shiokana in a murder case. Uh, I can give you information that um, may clear your name or the whole case. The author of the letter says he has reason to believe that a member of the guards is responsible for Sophie's death, that the guard in question has previous assault convictions that were covered up. The theory that a guard did it is one that we've heard from a friend who heard it from an uncle who heard it from a guy in prison, who would know? And then he goes on. Uh, he's saying to me that he'll give me full details, but he's expecting it to make it worth his while. Anyway, I spoke to him. On so he's asking for money there? Well, I, it sounds like it. It was a line I, I pursued for a little while, but it can only go so far. And what do you make of that? What do you make of the person? I don't know. I think maybe he just had cold feet. Do you ever think it might be the guards? No, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to go speculate down blind alleys. Ian says he finds it too frustrating to speculate like this. He says there's no way he could ever prove his innocence. Instead, he focuses on what he thinks he can prove, that the guards had decided he was the murderer, never mind the evidence. And though it's clear the guards did follow down at least some other leads... As far as Ian's concerned, any other police work was half-hearted at best. The investigation, in effect, was, was closed down. They've decided, it's me. And all other lines of inquiry, as far as I'm aware, ceased to be followed up. Which is what Ian's case against the guards was all about. After the result of the libel appeal, Ian and his lawyer, Frank Buttimer, had big plans. In 2014, in a civil suit... They set out to prove that the guards had been corrupt in their investigation of the murder, that they had falsified statements and pressured witnesses to give evidence that made Ian look guilty. During pre-trial discovery, Ian's lawyers uncovered something that shed new light on the guards' investigation. The Bandon tapes, those secret recordings of calls made during the investigation, unbeknownst to the guards. Ian has combed through the transcripts of these tapes, looking for evidence of misconduct. He has a large ring binder with transcripts of the calls and the pages are covered with his notes. We sat down with him one day as he ran through the highlights. There's a reference here to the fact that I'm supposed to be a self-admitting madman. Um, They're talking about various aspects of the case and they talk about the need to take him fucking down now. Um, And there's another reference here. But sure, we can always predate it if it comes to it, like you know. This is a, a reference to predating statements, uh, again, with the intention of getting them past the DPP. 
Ian takes all of this to demonstrate he was being set up. When we saw for the first time that this was direct evidential proof of what we, we had suspected had been going on. A three-year special commission into illegal Garda phone recordings found that while these tapes weren't absolute proof of corruption, they revealed a willingness by some of the guards involved to go that far, to modify and falsify evidence. Ian had another weapon. Marie Farrell would testify that the guards had massaged her statements and encouraged her to change the description of the man she saw so that it matched Ian. Ian thought the tapes and her testimony together would prove devastating at trial. The situation is this, that I have a hand grenade which I intend to throw into the viper's nest of my enemies. This is Ian making his audio diary again, as he prepares to take on the state in court, thinking in particular of the guard that Ian believes is the mastermind of it all, Detective Dermot Dwyer. And Dwyer's strange game of poker is just about to get played out in a public forum. And from where I, um, I perceive it this way, that uh, if it is a game of poker, that his hand is made up of nothing but knaves and jokers. Well, my hand is made up of kings, queens, and at least one ace. So, we'll see. Ian Bailey and his partner Jules Thomas arriving at court this morning with Mr Bailey's solicitor for the start of his action against the state. Mr Bailey is suing the Garda Commissioner, Minister for Justice and the Attorney General. His lawyers told the court he will allege that Garda conspired to manufacture evidence against him by unlawful means. These included procuring witnesses to say Mr Bailey was at a place when he wasn't. The Sophie Toscan de Plantier case is one of the most high-profile and longest-running investigations in Irish history, and it touched the entire police force. Ian was setting out to discredit the whole thing. A decade earlier, the libel trial had been only about Ian, his reputation. Now the guards would be going in the dock. Their reputation was on the line, and they took it seriously. Most of the guards from the original investigation were long since retired, but they showed up here in force, occupying most of a viewing balcony overlooking the courtroom, a flock of older men in shirts and ties with neatly cropped grey hair. It looked to be somewhere between a high school reunion and a day of reckoning. The case ran over 64 days, the longest civil trial to ever go before a jury in Ireland. Both sides had several rows of lawyers. Some 40 guards testified at trial. And once again, the trial turned on a single witness's testimony. The same witness, Marie Farrell. Apart from Ian, no witness was on the stand for longer. Over seven days, Marie Farrell took the court through her new version of events. On the stand, she talked about secret phone calls, fake identities, midnight assignations. And in Marie's new testimony, it wasn't Ian Bailey that was harassing her. It was the guards... Marie claimed that one guard had exposed himself to her in the bathroom of a golf club, and Detective Fitzgerald had propositioned her too. Mrs Farrell said she was cleaning a holiday home in Skull when Detective Garda Fitzgerald called to see it. She said when she came downstairs, he was in one of the bedrooms. He had stripped naked and asked her for sex. She said she told him to get out. 
and Marie said she had proof. A piece of evidence so lurid it's straight out of an episode of Days of Our Lives. If she hadn't seen the detective naked, she asked, how would she know about a growth he had in an intimate area on the lower abdomen? Under oath, Detective Fitzgerald flatly denied the incident. He said he remembers telling Marie's husband about the growth. And while Marie claimed he wouldn't leave her alone, Detective Fitzgerald's wife told investigators that Marie had become such a pest, she had Marie's number blocked on their home phone. Marie's testimony was overshadowing other details from the case. So much of it seemed like a sideshow to the murder investigation. But it all fed into the central deliberation of the trial. Do you believe the guards? Or do you believe her? Or rather, which version of Marie's story? The first version, where she ID'd Ian Bailey as the man in the long black coat, or the post-2005 version, where the guards coerced and conspired with her to falsely identify Ian? Detective Dermot Dwyer didn't really want to talk to us about any of this. Dwyer was promoted to West Cork Chief Superintendent in June 1997 and oversaw the case from that point. He denied that they put any influence on Marie Farrell to incriminate Ian. She identified Ian of her own accord. I believe what she said. What happened three or four years after, what can we do about it? But it's amazing how somebody can make statements in 1997 and change them into 205. You know, what happened in between? No, there was no evidence that she ever told us lies or anything. Everything she said stood up to examination. Except that according to James Hamilton, the director of public prosecutions, it didn't. Remember, Hamilton had serious problems with Marie as a witness. He devoted an entire section to her in his report pointing out that her description of the man in the long black coat seemed to shift from statement to statement. But Hamilton was also troubled about another man at the heart of Marie Farrell's story. For all the talk about the man she'd seen by Kilfadder Bridge on the night of the murder, there was no talk in Marie's evidence about the man she was out driving with. Hamilton zeroed in on this man. Marie said she wanted to keep it a secret from her husband, That's why when she called the guards about that night, she called anonymously as Fiona. But the guards rumbled her, and Marie says they then had something over her. She says in exchange for falsely identifying Ian as the man in the long black coat, the guards promised not to tell her husband where she'd been that night. In all his back and forth with the guards during the investigation, Hamilton never got an answer to this question. And Hamilton knew that if you put Marie on the stand in a criminal trial, the case would fall down. Marie would be guilty of perjury and the case likely thrown out. And something like that ended up happening at Ian's civil trial against the guards. As soon as the barristers for the state brought up Marie's second mystery man, it was like they threw a wrench in the works. I find it very difficult to believe that they didn't get to the bottom of who was in the car with you. Yeah, and they didn't. They didn't. Marie ran an ice cream parlour in a small seaside town. How was she able to stonewall an entire police force? But Marie says it wasn't a case of stonewalling anyone. The guards didn't really want to know. Yeah, but you see, Jim Fitzgerald didn't really want to corroborate the sighting. Because what would he have done if someone said, oh, it wasn't Ian Bailey? As in, the guards didn't want to track down and take a statement from Marie's ex-lover because he might not go along with the idea that Ian had been the man she saw on the coast road. 
What Marie says doesn't quite square with what's in the statements and what you can hear in the Bandon tapes. According to his statement, Detective Fitzgerald was given the task of tracking this man down shortly after Ian's first arrest, back in 1997. Um, there's awful problems as well, didn't you see, um, between you and me and the wall, which uh, a collaboration of a sighting at the bridge. Yeah. The records seem to show that Detective Fitzgerald dedicated a lot of time to the question. So she has made a statement on the condition that he will never be interviewed because she doesn't want to break his home up. According to his account, Detective Fitzgerald managed to coax a few details out of Marie. That her man drove a small red car, an opal make, a sporty thing, she said. She said he'd been in Cork City that weekend for taekwondo practice. Not knowing Marie was giving him the runaround, Detective Fitzgerald took a deep dive into the Irish taekwondo scene. Yeah, I can't remember, but there was, yeah. But you sent him on, like... A wild goose chase. I'm telling you, it was mad. It was mad. That year, 1997, was mad. He finally tracked down the taekwondo guy who knew Marie but hadn't heard from her in years and was nowhere near West Cork that night. Marie gave Detective Fitzgerald another name. He turned out to be a musician who died several years earlier. She told us she got the name off a gravestone. Marie says Detective Fitzgerald was putting her up to it all. He told her he just needed to give his bosses a name, any name, pick a dead guy. Detective Fitzgerald asked whether he'd really go to all that trouble of finding the taekwondo guy if he knew it was all a ruse. But even if Detective Fitzgerald did soft-pedal his search for the man Marie had been out driving with, that became kind of moot in 2014 when on the stand, on day 21 of the High Court trial, Marie was asked the same question by a barrister, under oath, and she still refused to say... In the witness box today, she still refused to name the man she was with that night. I will not do that, she said. Mr Justice John Hedigan told her this was one of the most serious cases to be heard in recent years. She was obliged to tell the whole truth. Now answer the question, he said. At that point, Mrs Farrell said she was going. I'm having nothing more to do with this, she said. She left the witness box and walked out of court. A key witness in the Ian Bailey case walked out of court today. In the middle of her testimony, Marie hot-footed it from the courthouse. The six o'clock news that night showed Marie storming down the keys to the train station, clutching her handbag. She was persuaded to return to the stand later that day. The judge warned her about the risks of perjury. She gave yet another name. This time it was a factory worker from her hometown who was also dead. The guards ran searches on the name she'd given during the trial and came up with nothing. The question has become not so much who she was out with, but why won't she say? I just don't like talking about it. It's just the whole thing is embarrassing for us. This guy never threatened you anymore? No, no. I didn't have any contact with him afterwards. So there was no money involved. I wasn't paid off to keep quiet about him or anything. She said this person never threatened her, never bought her silence. We had assumed that what she'd said at trial was another cover story, but Marie told us she'd told the truth in court. The man in the car was the dead factory worker from her hometown but she wouldn't give us any details that would help us verify what she was saying. Marie originally said she wanted to keep it all from her husband, but according to her own account, she told him the truth about this man midway through 1997. 
Marie says she just wants a quiet life, free from drama. But keeping the secret only creates more. Quiet life, normal existence. That's all completely forgivable. What wouldn't be forgivable is not helping to find out who killed someone. And so when there's a murder involved... Yeah, but I did try and help. There's nothing more I could have done. Like, there's lots of things I shouldn't have done, but I couldn't have done any more. Well, you could have told them who you were out with that night. Yeah, but what difference would that make? They'd already changed that anyway. They'd already changed the description of who I had seen. So, and I didn't tell them, and it's now 20 years later, so it's not going to make any difference. Because he's dead now. Yeah. So we can't uh, talk to him. So will we move on from that? But we still had so many questions about this man Marie calls John Riley. Surely, like everyone else in Ireland at the time, he followed the case on the news. Did you ever think, like, what must John be thinking about this? No. Were you not surprised that he didn't come forward? I never really thought about it. And like I said, it's not as if, you know, we have mobile phones or we were in touch or anything. So, you know, at that time, my only concern would have been, you know, to get things back to normal at home. Marie still tries to downplay it all and convince you that this question isn't such a big deal. But it's like someone who keeps telling you, move along now, nothing to see here. Pretty soon it's all you can think about. At Ian's High Court trial, it seems Marie was on the minds of the jury to the last. During their deliberations, they asked to reconsider a particular piece of evidence. A phone call between Marie and Detective Fitzgerald. On this call, Detective Fitzgerald is apparently furious that she's given a written statement to other detectives. Marie was Fitzgerald's witness. He was charged with handling her. He wants to know why she appears to have gone behind his back. Answer me fucking say, I do say deserve an answer after a fucking year and a half on this phone. Fuck's sake. Jesus Christ, I'm waiting to do something just fucking just... I can't hear you, love. For Jesus' sake, Marie, you freaking... I just don't fucking know. I don't know. In the Dashiell Hammett detective novel, The Thin Man, there's a word of warning given to a detective dealing with a deceptive blonde, which goes, The chief thing is not to let her tire you out. She keeps trying and you've got to be careful or you'll find yourself believing her. Not because she seems to be telling the truth, but just because you're tired of disbelieving her. Listening to the Bandon tape call between Detective Fitzgerald and Marie, it's difficult to know who's really calling the shots. Was Marie ever really on the inside of an investigation? Or was there just a detective, desperate and beaten down by her relentless evasiveness? In the end, most of the rest of Ian's case was struck out. At the last minute, the judge ruled that much of Ian's evidence was statute barred or beyond the statute of limitations. After a 64-day trial, the judge asked the jury to decide whether they'd seen evidence of a conspiracy. Did the guards take statements about Ian from Marie Farrell, knowing them to be false? On the evidence, 
the jury decided the guards didn't conspire, coerce, or induce Marie to make false statements implicating Ian, or to make false complaints of harassment or intimidation, so they didn't buy Marie's news story. Ian's appealing the verdict, but as it stands, he's on the hook for the lawyer's fees, which run into the millions, and which he can't hope to pay. He has no assets to his name, and no way to make more than a meagre living. Ian seemed to have come to the end of the line. There was no other avenue for him to win the vindication he had sought for 20 years. The limbo would continue, apparently forever. At the end of the trial, the judge addressed the court with the sense that the Irish system had failed Sophie and her family. The final thing I want to say in this case is that throughout this long and difficult case, there's always been in the background the shadow of the late Madame Sophie Toscan de Plantier and her tragic and senseless death. It's a source of dismay and anguish in Ireland and in France that her cruel killer has not been brought to justice. The guards may have won the trial, but the whole thing illuminated a central flaw in their investigation. Detective Fitzgerald repeated at trial that he never got to the bottom of who was in the car with Marie that night. And Detective Dermot Dwyer, the man running the investigation, told us the same thing. But without knowing who was in the car with Marie, how could they ever have been sure that Ian Bailey was Sophie's killer? Or be certain of anything about the case? This was supposedly another man who slipped in and out of West Cork that night. Until you identified him, surely he was a possible suspect, Marie Farrell possibly covering for him. How can you even be sure that Marie didn't make the whole thing up? And if she did, then why? Did the guards grab onto Marie because she was the only person giving them what they needed? You know, we'd no choice but to believe her. You don't get too many witnesses down down near the Atlantic, down in West Cork at three o'clock in the morning. We have to work with what we, is in front of us. We can't be manufacturing lovely witnesses that saw everything. Perhaps, given everything, it would have been better for everyone if they hadn't found a witness at all. Instead, they pushed forward, building their case around a witness who, as they'd already been warned by the DPP, was like a rotten apple that would end up spoiling the whole case. If I look back at the murder case, we did a few things looking back and they were a small bit stupid. But I think if you ask me, there was total honesty there. You know, like, we're all very clever looking back with 2020 vision, as I say. We have to investigate the murder on the facts as it is then. There's no point in looking back 20 years after and saying, maybe we should have done this and maybe we should have that. That's the story of life, isn't it? Detective Dwyer didn't want to get into the nitty-gritty of the case. But you wonder what he thought these stupid things might have been. Did they include the guards' handling of witnesses like Marie Farrell or Martin Graham? Or perhaps it was about the witnesses they didn't pursue, or didn't pursue soon enough. Like those people who say Ian told them about the murder on the phone, the day the body was discovered, before he should have known anything about it. Remember, the guards were relying on old memories because it took them months to get to these people. And then there was the guy it took them 14 years to get to, Leo Bolger. Did you see them shake hands? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. It was all very quick and very insignificant at the time. 
In 2010, the guards took a statement from Leo that he was there when Ian met Sophie. It was that day up at Alfie Lyons' house, Sophie's neighbor, when Ian was doing some gardening work for Alfie. Remember, Ian's always maintained that he never met Sophie, that he just saw her that day through a window. Alfie had been sure that he introduced Ian to Sophie, 90% sure is how he said it at the libel trial. But it was Ian's word against Alfie's, and it would have stayed that way, were it not for Leo. Well, Leo, I, I would have known of, but didn't know him as a friend. Uh, I wouldn't have been an associate or anybody I would have particularly spoken to. I always found him a rather um, a scruffy individual. He just remembered 14 years earlier that he was um, in the company of Alf Lyons with Madame de Pontier, and I, and I was there also, which was a complete and absolute lie. Another reason Ian sees Leo's evidence as tainted is that by the time Leo did finally go on the record with the guards in 2010, he had his own troubles. He was facing a charge for large-scale marijuana manufacture. The amount of marijuana Leo was caught with usually means prison time, but he was let off with a suspended sentence. Ian suspects foul play, that Leo was given leniency in return for playing ball with the guards over his case. Even Leo was surprised that he got off so lightly. Of course, people automatically presume that I was doing one thing for a favour for another thing, you know. But the thing is, 2010 wasn't the first time that Leo had told anyone about what he saw. Years earlier, Leo spoke to a lawyer, a lawyer for the newspapers that Ian sued for libel, named Paula Maluli. She told us that they'd heard there was someone who could corroborate Alfie's story about an encounter between Ian and Sophie, and they tracked Leo down. Leo was even lined up to testify at the trial, but the case was settled, so he never got called to the stand. Say I just went home, nobody called me, so I thought, well, my story isn't very important. I just went home and and forgot about it. Maluli told us that the story Leo told them back then matches what he says today. That day, Leo was doing some handiwork on Sophie's roof, and he says sometime around midday, Sophie had gone into Skull to do some shopping, and he went up to see his friend Alfie where Ian was working on the garden. Leah says they were sitting having coffee together when Sophie appeared. And Sophie actually walked up into the yard. I guess she'd come back and maybe was wondering where I was or, you know. And Alfie, uh, there was a kind of, I sensed that there was going to be an introduction, you know, because it was something I'd suspected a little bit earlier. I knew Ian wanted to be introduced to her. Um, so I kind of hung back and I let him get on with it. And it was really, it was just this, a handshake. This is Ian, this is Sophie, how you do? And they shook hands and I kind of walked past down the yard and, and Sophie came down behind me. So there was no great conversation or anything like that, but uh, there was a meeting. There are various things that stick in Leo's head that make him trust his recollection. Like the satchel Ian had with him, the one he always had with him, filled with his poems and writings. Leo says he remembers that Ian wanted to show his writings to Sophie, and he wondered to himself what she'd make of them. Eventually, an Irish Times reporter learned about his story. Leo says a guard called over to take a statement a few days after the article appeared. reporter came and said to me, you know, this is what I've heard. So a lawyer and a reporter both learned the story and tracked Leo down before the guards did. How did they miss it? 
Leo's story could have helped the guards make a connection between Ian and Sophie, a connection they'd been struggling to make. The guards did speak to Leo after the murder. Remember, in the first few weeks of the investigation, they were looking at Leo and Sally as possible suspects. Once they'd been eliminated, the guards never came back to them, even though they were two of the few people in West Cork who actually knew Sophie. But it's as if once they settled on Ian as their prime suspect, they quickly became so sure about their suspicions, about this man who allegedly confessed to members of the community, so sure he would give them all they needed, that they didn't think they'd need to build a meticulous case. But in failing to build a meticulous case, the guards may have denied everyone a real day in court. At one point, Jules even wrote to the DPP pleading with him to give them a trial. Anything was better than the open-endedness, the dark gossip, the lingering suspicion, ceaselessly chipping away at reputations of both Ian and the guards. And then one final point, just on, is he the one that got away? Who? Ian Bailey. But there's no talk of anyone got away, yet there's a long ways to go. How would you say he's got away? You know, I don't think he had. If Ian Bailey committed a murder and some fine day he's up in court and he's convicted, how would you say he got away with it? The legal view is there's no way Ian could ever be tried in Ireland, even if the evidence was there to do it. With all the years of publicity, you wouldn't find a jury to take a straight look at it. But Ireland isn't the only country with skin in the game. This was an international investigation, a British suspect, a French victim, a family in Paris campaigning for justice in their own country for the past 20 years. People say nothing really happens in this case, that it's a soap opera, dragging on interminably, never any closer to a resolution. But on the 4th of August 2016, the summer we were in West Cork, something did happen. Media reports from France say the authorities plan to open legal proceedings against Ian Bailey in connection with the death of the film producer Sophie Toscan Duplantier in County Cork 20 years ago. West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. This is Audible. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.